Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is actor Paul Sung-Hyung Lee, whose face is currently plastered all over Canadian cities thanks to Kim's Convenience, a new CBC sitcom based on Ince Choi's wildly successful stage play. Paul created the grumpy patriarch Appa in the play, and he's reprising that role in the show, which premieres tonight, Tuesday, October 11th, at 9pm, 9.30 in Newfoundland. Paul chose Jaws, and I am so ridiculously glad that he did. As you're no doubt tired of hearing on this show, Steven Spielberg's 1975 thriller is one of my very favorite films, a work of exhilarating cinema that's also a nuanced study of masculinity and a thoughtful portrait of a community under siege, mostly because they went into production without a working monster and had to beef up the character stuff to fill time. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, and Richard Dreyfuss are perfectly cast. John Williams' score and Verna Field's editing, both of which won Oscars, are as essential to the experience as the actors, and... Well, you know. Jaws basically lives inside of me all the time, and after a year and a half of doing this show, I finally get to talk about it. This is someone else's movie, but it's mine too. So when, when was the first time you saw Jaws? Uh, I was a kid. Yeah. I was probably... Um, I was probably eight or nine. My, my parents divorced and my dad had a VCR. Okay. So he taped Jaws from the ABC broadcast. Oh wow! Cut the commercials out, nice. uh, and and would only let me watch it from the departure of the orca. Okay. So my my entire experience of Jaws as a kid was the second hour. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, so it's just an adventure movie, and yeah. it was short. So I watched it a lot of times. Okay. And it wasn't until I was um, probably thirteen or fourteen that I saw the whole thing. Uncut. Yeah. That's amazing. Would have been nineteen eighty. Well, is that right? Nineteen eighty two. Maybe. I was uh, five and a half. Okay. And my parents took us to see, uh, in the theater, it was Jaws 2 that was playing, but back then, if they had a sequel, what they would do, they would show the first movie. They released it, right. So, I had no idea. We were just going out to the movies, and I didn't really understand what was going on. But I remember it was so full, we couldn't sit together. And so my mom and my sister sat separate from us together, and these two seats were way up at the front. But my dad and I, my dad had to sit behind me. Okay. And I'm five and a half years old <laughs> watching this movie. My dad, like, and in my world, when the, once the lights went down, my dad wasn't beside me. So I was by myself watching it. Right, yeah. And I remember just getting completely engrossed in what was going on. At the beginning, freaked the hell right out of me. But I, I was just like, I had to know what happened. Like, I didn't know it was a shark. Like, I didn't know what it was about. Right, right, right. Uh, and, you know, so I thought it was kind of this weird monster movie. But the one part that really I remember sticking out was when uh, they find Ben Gardner's boat mm-hmm. and uh, Hooper goes into the water, you know, and he's, he's shaking it and Ben Gardner's head pops up. Yeah. That has been a, a touchstone movie moment for me because uh, when it happened, I remember my dad knew something was going to happen and the asshole that he was oh, reached over no. and grabbed me right when the head popped up. <laughs> and I, I, I screamed bloody murder, but... Everybody else did too, right? right? So yeah. the whole the whole road just started shrieking, and uh, started to laugh, right? And that was the first time I kind of realized that it was okay to be scared sometimes. It was like in this setting, 
And whenever I showed Jaws to friends who had never seen it before, I'd always, I'd sit and I'd just watch their reaction yeah, to it. I did that again uh, last month at the screening because I, I, there's a couple, there are a couple of movies now that I react that way to. There's, there's Jaws and Alien, which right. I have so internalized, so fully, <laughs> I know it beat for beat, except yeah. for one thing that always surprises me about Jaws, which is that the ending happens, the climax is much faster and much shorter than I remember. Yeah. I always forget about Hooper going in the water. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like okay, now the boat, now the boat, and then oh wait, that's right. There's this distraction where apparently the shark is just somewhere else, checking its mail or something, <laughs> coming back to attack them again. Because it's a weird lull, right? There's so much intensity, and then suddenly he, they take the time to build the cage and put yeah. him in the water, and they put him in, and yeah, yeah it works. It still flows, but yeah. I, I always forget that that's there because in my head it's ramping up faster. Yeah. Uh, but watching watching Ben Gardner's boat sequence, yeah, again, I was just watching the people in front of me, and they were all. They'd all seen the movie. No one had asked. I asked at the beginning, just out of curiosity, has right. anybody not seen this? But people hadn't seen it in the theater. Okay. And so their response was completely different. Yeah. And there was, you know, there was, there was <laughs> shouting and hooting. And I just, I just love watching a movie play people like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that was an added sequence too, right? Like in the original. It was a reshoot, yeah. Yeah. And it was in uh, Spielberg's swimming pool. Yeah, yeah. Or something, which is cool because as they were sort of showing to test audiences, Spielberg was saying that. We need one more jump scare, one one more scare in there, and uh, I remember the it was there was one moment that was extremely painful for me to watch it because I was with a, a friend of mine, um, and he'd never seen Jaws before, and he was in his thirties, and uh, how do you live? Well, that's the thing, right? It's like, and that was my response. Well, we must watch this and sit down and watch it. And uh, he's a comedian. His name is Richard Ryder. Big, big, strong guy. His hand is about the size of my face. It's screamingly gay. Okay. And uh, we're sitting there, uh, I remember watching it, and it was, the part was coming up, and he's, it's inching up. And when his head pops out, Richard screams so loud, and then he immediately turned, and he swatted me. <laughs> and knocked me off the sofa, under the ground. <laughs> like, that was his visceral reaction to that. God, I do that when a cabinet door hits me. <laughs> you, know, you just want to smack something. Yeah, so, just recently I showed my kids Jaws for mm-hmm. the first time. Because I figured, you know, I was five and a half, so my kids were ready to watch it, right? And I videotaped the reaction oh, to that sequence and they they're, they're all on the sofa and they got my my eldest has this coward blanket that's what i call it because I, that's what i do i, I bundle <laughs> up and my youngest is just sitting there my wife's sitting between the two of them and uh it, it was just i loved it like i just very surreptitiously got my camera ready and i'd love to show that to you if i can find yeah. it here not to worry um but it was oh my god it was it was everything <laughs> But the, thing, the drawback was my son, my youngest son, then proceeded to have nightmares about Ben Gardner's head sure. floating around. And so I got, sure. I kind of got in shit for that. But here's, here it is. Not there. And we got the tooth the size of a shot glass. Yeah. Oh, I really hope this picks up. But I love how everybody just sort of jumps. Right. And then my wife tries to cover his ass. It's okay. That's so sweet. I just did this to you, but are you okay? (laughs) But I mean, they were in. There is no, can we stop? Um, You know, there's no getting up and running around, which usually is what happens, even with the big superhero movies, right? It was just, and that's what I loved about it. They were so completely engaged in the story of what was going on. and that, that for me is, uh, I mean, that's strong storytelling as well, right? Like that just sort of, 
grabs grabs onto you and you just like even though they're all more quiet moments um they're, they're still there because they never know what can happen to it and yeah it's just it's amazing that even after like it's like 41 years yeah and the movie's still going on strong yeah and it's i i was thinking about this too just watching it this time i was paying attention to the clothes and mm. how it there's not a lot of 70s look like maybe glasses maybe some hair yeah but even that now looks like hipsters you it does almost retake you can almost take yeah. it back there's a lot of khakis yeah. there's a lot of just sort of ill-fitting suits and, yeah. and bad beards on people here and there <laughs> yeah. uh, like richard dreyfus could be in gowanus right now oh absolutely matt hooper could yeah be. yeah absolutely um and that's oh man that that's what I, the, the one thing is as well that i'm sort of like really on edge about and i'm glad they haven't done it because um, you know, there's this rash of reboots and remakes yeah. and this and that. Oh. And it's, it's only a matter of time. Villagers were torches, though. <sighs> I, I, we would stop this. But they said that. I mean, they did it with Ghostbusters. They've done it with Ben Hur. They just recently sure. did another. Like why? And nobody why? noticed. That was like, <laughs> the amazing thing. They sort of put it out in late August, and everybody just kind of collectively went. Meh. Well, they know though, right? And yeah. that's the thing. And I think Ben Hur, because it's so, it's. I mean, that's the '50s, right? Mm, but the one before that was from the '20s. I mean, it's yeah. it's a perennial, really, in a way, for for remakes, but. Yeah, just the idea that we're going to take this thing that everybody knows, but of course that's why they that's why they do it. Right? Yeah, like we're going to take this popular popular property or reliably selling brand title right. and make another one and redo it. And you know, well, you know, the first one had people lose a certain stilted style of acting, and then there's mm-hmm. the remake, and that was a stilted style of acting. So let's make it modern and really and cute. yeah, the the idea of of Timur Bekmambetov doing it was the only thing that I was interested in because he made Nightwatch and Daywatch right, yeah, yeah, and yeah. wanted. He's insane. Like I would love to see his version of a chariot race. I had a friend who was actually working, a friend of a friend who was working on the VFX for it, and that's how I knew it was being made mm-hmm. because she was doing work on it, and she was like, yeah. she, you know, she was doing the work on. It, she says it's awful. It looks no. awful, and they all know it's awful. And that was one of the things, which is why I think they just sort of quietly released it, and yeah. then it just if you went for lunch that day, you missed it. Yeah, you don't release a. I mean, you don't release something you believe in in the middle of August yeah. generally, yeah. unless it's counter programming. And Ben Hur, with you know, no, with no campaign, no real push, it just sort of perp- burped up and went away. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. Now I'm just trying to imagine a remake of Jaws, and I, it, it all goes to murder. I just like, yeah. <laughs> who would bother? Like you would just as a filmmaker, I would imagine it would be so daunting to even think about it. Like, why would you do it? There's like, no win. There's no, no win. No, no, none whatsoever. I mean, but I mean, there's there's an executive out there who's salving at the chance. So maybe it is somebody who has um, a deep. I mean, I I get the sense that a lot of these reboots are from guys that watched the movies when they were kids and loved it and said, "Oh, we need movies more like that." Right. Yeah. So because we're not original, we're just going to take that idea and we're just going to update it. And it's going to be super cool and fun, and uh, more and more people are. But people still go out to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. even the haters go, oh, forget it. I mean, that's the biggest form of protest anybody can have is to refuse to see it and not, you know, because once they make up their minds, if they're going to make it, they're going to make it anyways, right? Yeah. And uh, it'll be released. But I, I find this trend, a lot of people are up in arms. They hate it so much, but they still go to, like, they hate view it, right? Yeah. So they'll pay money to hate view it yeah. no, and, and then the, slam it. The idea of doing that is just, it's, I mean, it's not counterproductive exactly, right? Because your goal is to be angry. You, right. If you, like, if you really want to be mad at something, <laughs> then it, 13 bucks isn't that big of an investment. <laughs> so I think of the social media pl- pl- play you'll get out of it. The yeah. idea that you can just, you can yell about it for years, but of course you can do that anyway. You don't actually have to see the thing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, why, 
oh no, don't even. <laughs> just, it just, I just kept, keep coming back to this little plea with anybody who might be listening. Please don't remake Jaws. Oh yeah, no. Please. I mean, first of all, I assume Steven Spielberg would have that person killed. Well, I, who has rights? Universal. I mean, they yeah. own the property, but again, like, you don't. He, I can't imagine they'd want to alienate. Him. Yeah, Steven Spielberg. Unless they get him, you know, on board as an executive producer, yeah. and they get a hot young director who's in his twenties, like Spielberg was sure. back in the day. Oh no, don't they, do this. They try to turn it into something, you know, like just you can see it though, like the possibilities. People like they are they're so afraid of taking a risk on anything original that they'd rather rehash and take the chance on alienating a huge fan base. Right. To, to, to get this done and say, no, no, but this time we'll do it right. Yeah. You know, like Robert Zemeckis, he still has the rights to Back to the Future. Sure. And he's steadfastly said, no, there will never be a remake of this movie ever while I'm still alive, while I have the rights. And that's very, that's fantastic. But then I was thinking the other day, you know, back in the 80s, when Marty McFly went back in time, it was 30 years, and it was in the 50s. Right. We're now at the point now where 30 years ago, it's it would have been the 80s. Yeah. And that would be, I mean, there's a little part in it that kind of goes, that would be neat. And now I understand all the adults at the time when Back to the Future came out, you know, when they saw the 50s. Oh, operating on the nostalgia, yeah. Exactly. Sort of sitting back and go, oh, yeah, I remember that about gas stations and <laughs> full service. And, oh, I remember all these these school dances and the styles and the, the language and st- stuff. And now, because the 80s is so popular now, or has been for a while, sure, 80s yeah. music and all these retro ideas to sort of have a vehicle where you're going back in time another 30 years to the 80s and have it because if you look at the advancements in technology in way people interact with each other it's that alien as it would have been for Marty McFly yeah, to go sure. back so there's a little part of me that sort of goes it'll never get made but there's still like oh that's it's still intriguing enough yeah. for that possibility and I you know I can't think of they've had how many other shark movies well, come the Shallows out. was just this summer. Which I haven't had a chance to see. It's pretty good. Oh, great. It's it's economical. It's like 82 minutes. It doesn't it doesn't kill the lily. It takes the concept and runs with it and okay. goes exactly as far as it needs to. And is actually pretty smart about at least one thing towards the end where okay. it seems to be setting up one ending and goes another way. And that is clever. Great. Just in terms of the, the mechanics of how right. things play out. Because um, the one thing I always do see in Jaws is, is the... The, the, the oxygen tanks are kind of obvious. I mean, yeah. they're just, they're there a lot. <laughs> they are. They are, uh, they play that. Even to the point where there's a photograph of the shark with a tank in its mouth in the, one of the books that, that Brody is browsing through. That's right. I always forget that. That's the first, that's like, oh, the, really, that far in, he set it up all that he way. It in, yeah. Which is fine, but then when you see it again and again, at repeat viewings, I mean, God, I must have seen the thing. I've lost count, but I would say... All like all the way through top to bottom, I've probably watched it thirty or forty times now, but yeah. over you know twenty thirty five years. Yeah, well, it's one of those things. Uh, I mean, it's a rule when you're flipping through the TV channels, and when certain movies are, you have to stop. Yeah, Godfather's one of them. Uh, Jaws is another one where it's like it's on. I'm sorry, we got to yeah. stop and we got to watch whatever's uh, happening. Right. One of the one of the great interviews of my life was was Richard Dreyfus in '95. Um, and I think I may have told this story on the podcast before, but it's it's appropriate now, so I'm telling it again. Uh, he he was doing uh, well. I was in New York for the junket for Mr. Holland's Opus, so mm-hmm. it was December '95, and the Jaws laserdisc, the 20th anniversary giant ass CAV laserdisc, yeah. which I have here somewhere. Oh wow! Uh, had just come out. And I had it, I had played with it, and he hadn't. It was back in Los Angeles, and he'd been touring with the film. Oh. And so we sit down, and it's a long day, and he's he's 
you know, he knows he's got a, a hit movie that everybody like. The response was really strong, so he's on a high, and he's just saying, uh, and, uh, saying how how great it was to have a movie that he could believe in again because he'd been gone for a while and he was back. And uh, he he said that you know I, I get excited about some movies, and I'm like, well, you must have been excited about Jaws. And I was like, oh well, Jaws, we just you know everybody thought it was going to bomb and then it worked out. <laughs> and I said because I was watching the documentary, and he said, you've seen it. Oh my God! What's it like? Is it good? And so we talked for a while, and he said that, um, like, he just like he dropped twenty years. He was immediately young and excitable again. It was fantastic. Oh, wow. And he said that Jaws is the movie that if he watches it, he's not sure he'll make it. Like he has to watch it to make sure oh, Matt gets away. That's great. Yeah. Well, because in the in the novel too, he dies. Yeah. Right. Like he yeah. gets eaten by the shark. The, you know, the, the the cage goes in the water. The shark tears through it, eats him. Right. It's also revenge, like literary revenge for having Brody's wife. Exactly. Which, again, really smart thing to just excise. Uh, the, yeah, we haven't even gotten into the the the, the 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 nature of the production of Jaws, and and there's time to jump all over the place. Okay, and I'm sure we will. But the thing that fascinates me the most, and I've used this in introductions of the film in the past, is that this movie was like it's the greatest accident in the history of cinema. Yeah, uh, the shark didn't work. This is the other story that that um, that uh, Dreyfus told me, yeah. uh, and it's in it's subsequently turned up in the shark is still working in the documentary. Yeah, uh, he, he would get up in the morning every day. They were at this bed and breakfast at the top of a of a, a hill on Martha's Vineyard, and they would walk down. He would walk down the the hill, and he would get his coffee, and he would walk, and he would grab a paper, and he would pass at every at every intersection, he would pass Teamsters uh, <laughs> listening to their walkie-talkies, and he would hear, our shark is not working. And he would look at them, and they'd go, eh, keep walking, they'll get it. <laughs> and then he'd get to the next block, and our shark is not working. And he would get down there and still go and still go. And finally, he would get down to the very base uh, of the... Uh, of the hill near the near the dock, and Spielberg would be kicking something, and the, the shark wasn't working, and they would just look at him and say, "Just go back up, yeah, just oh, go." Man. And they would run lines, and they would develop the characters, and that's where yeah. Gottlieb came in, and they gave the movie a life that it probably wouldn't have. Absolutely. Certainly, characters uh, are three dimensional in a way that they wouldn't need to be if you had a working monster. Exactly. Well, I mean, and then I know uh, just reading from it as well. For the longest time, they wanted to keep the fact that they were using a mechanical shark. A secret mm-hmm. because they were really worried that it would take away from the realism of the of the movie, and uh, they had this uh, this area called Shark City where they would stage uh, all the mechanical sharks and and work work on them and this and that and it became this sort of a, a perverse game of hide and seek with the <laughs> press and other you know townsfolk sort of tipping off the press as to where the shark was going to be mm-hmm. so they try to keep it covered up as much as possible. But you're absolutely right. They they would have legendary from when I read dinner parties. Where they had that, where they were staying at this one woman who basically fed them was a fantastic cook, and during the tourist season she would be um, serving all all the, the the big celebrities that would come to town. But because they, she was tasked with the Universal people, they would come down and they would have like her specialties apparently were desserts, and they would spend you know dinners, working dinners together, and they'd be talking about uh, you know uh, the, the story and lines and scenes. Godly would be there and. She learned to set a place aside for him so he could have his notepad so he could write down all these notes. And they would always stop for about 10 minutes to sort of praise her cooking. And it was, you know, uh, as Godlieb says, you know, it's, it's it wasn't forced at all. It was uh, absolutely the highlight of the evening. It was them just sort of getting their food and then they'd go back to work. And everybody would go to bed and Godlieb would stay up and he'd write crazily. And then he'd, you know, drop off his notes to the, to the stenographer, the copyist, uh, you know, on the island. And she would transcribe into working scripts and stuff. But it drove... 
the production crew crazy because they it, it always felt like for them things were last minute changes and they kind of were but it wasn't arbitrary it helped to serve the story yeah. and with a lot of the actors too I mean Robert Shaw was only supposed to be there he only had a finite number of days to be on the island otherwise if he'd stayed longer uh, he'd get ta- his tax right, bracket the, the British the British tax system exactly yeah, so you know in some of his off days when it looked like it was getting too far they, they were going to lose days he'd fly off to Montreal actually and play golf up there for a bit and then come back to the States <laughs> when they were ready for him. Uh, so, Oh, because of course we were still part of the Commonwealth. Yeah. I just, yeah. You know what? I only just make it that Isn't out. crazy? Yeah. yeah. So stuff like that. And, and that is, it is, it's a luxury actually when you get a chance to sit down and work out things basically because you have nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. So why not? And that's, you know, good on them for at least using that time. You know, we're here. Let's, let's really hash it out. And I love the idea of actors sort of sitting together and really, really working on the, the character, the dynamics between the two. I mean, the fact that, you know, Hooper, uh, sorry, Dreyfus and Shaw didn't kind of have kind of a pissing contest in real life going on while yeah. they were doing it certainly added uh, to, to their uh, relationship on screen as well. Yeah, and um, that was something that I noticed in this last viewing. I, I found myself paying, I was weirdly fixated on the idea that Hooper and and Quint are locked in this this semen war, for yeah. lack of a better term, where they're both absolutely competent. And that was the thing that I didn't really catch until this time because, you know, you, you have the scene where uh, Quint crushes the beer can and, and Hooper crushes the, the plastic styrofoam yeah. cup. But he's also an able seaman. Like, he actually does everything he's told to do immediately and without complaint. Mm-hmm. Brody's the fumbler. Yep. And to the point where Quint and Brody start bonding when... Hooper dresses Brody down for pulling the wrong walk. That's right. And it's the first time I really noticed that that dynamic, like it's not just uh, male, like alpha, alpha, alpha rivalry. It's actually points of pride between the two mm-hmm. of them over how they are captain and mate and how they actually work the boat. And yeah. they're like that stuff. I, who would have time for that now? It, would, it wouldn't even occur to anybody to write that stuff in. No. Yeah. And it's a class war, too, right? Because mm-hmm. you've got somebody who comes from a position of privilege, like Hooper, who's, you know, he's, he's crewed on several sort of transatlantic... America's sort of Cup races. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then there's Quint, who's just like this blue-collar, hard-working, you know, he says he's got that line, you know, like, a, you know, real men work down here, we do sharking, sharking for a living. Yeah. You know, and, and he... You know, and there's something that he thinks he could get on Hooper, but when Hooper shows he can tie these knots and he, he is a, a, an able seaman, that's something that, you know, sort of robs Quint of a bit of that power. So he's got that, that uh, there's that great social sort of economic mm-hmm. um, uh, rivalry that's sort of happening there too. Yeah. And, and again, Brody's perfectly in the middle. Yeah. He's always centered yeah. uh, in, in any conflict because he's cool-headed, he's competent, but he's scared. Yeah. And that makes him, not only does that make him the perfect balance, it's almost like the Spock-McCoy-Kirk uh, trinity, but it also makes him the ideal audience surrogate. Yes. Because I don't want to be on that boat. Like I, <laughs> uh, the bravest thing he does is say it's his charter yeah. and go with him because, you know, I, oh God, I love that, the economy of that, you know, Martin stays in his car uh, when we're on the ferry. There's a, there's a term for that, isn't there? Drowning. Drowning. Yeah. <laughs> It's he's his fears are absolutely legitimate and completely rational. Yeah, and he still has to go on the boat. He still has to face the shark alone. like alone. He's mm-hmm. the hero of this movie. That's going to happen. Yeah, but the film does such a beautiful job of creating fully realized characters for him on either side with Quentin and Hooper. 
it could be any one of them who survives. It could mm-hmm. be none of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's my, my standard joke about great character design is that if Alan Rickman kills Bruce Willis and wins in Die Hard, no one would really have a problem with that. True. It's as appealing yeah. a character. But in Jaws, I mean, obviously, the shark's not going to win. But there is a genuine risk and danger to the characters. There's no guarantee that any of them is going to make it, mm-hmm. which is, again, just not something that happens anymore. Nobody gets, you know, haloed in light to show us who the hero is going to be. Right. There's a real sense of the puniness of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over the course of the film, too, the threat of the shark is just built up quite logically, you know, 20 yeah. foot or 25 Never seen anything happen like that before. Never seen him go down with this many barrels. And the shark is an impossible creature. Yeah. Uh, and it really, like, it is a monster movie. Yeah. Um, but, oh my God, it's such a human one. It's such a grounded one. And it really is just, it makes you thrill to the adventure of a terrifying horror. Like yeah. a natural horror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's, it still is by far. I mean, I, I, there are movies that I love to watch and movies that I sort of, I've connected with, but like always throughout all, like even more than Star Wars, even more than Star Trek or any other, like Indiana Jones, Ghostbusters, so that's, you know, Jaws has always been my touchstone. I always go back to that for pure sort of experience of just sitting there and like you say, it's the economy of film tel- uh, uh, filmmaking as well. And the fact that they, it all came out of, horrible, horrible circumstances that were beyond their control. But they did as much as they could with what they were given. And that's what makes it so triumphant in that sense, you know. And it still kills me, the fact that, you know, Spielberg's 26 years old and he shot that movie. Son of a bitch. Right. Like, I I feel, yeah, I just feel so useless sometimes. Like, (laughs) well, what did you do when you were 26? I thought, well, I was getting in trouble a lot. (laughs) And I really hadn't accomplished much. But to have something like this sort of because it would have been really easy to to just sort of mail it in yeah you know this isn't working just yeah whatever just go you know take your name off the movie put in alan smithy's name or whatever and just but they they really there was a sense of you know they didn't panic or at least there wasn't outward panic i'm sure there was a he got ulcers from it yeah but uh the fact that it still holds up today and yeah the shark looks rubber at certain points but you don't care like that's the part of it is I mean it's so funny hearing people kind of miss uh, try to try to dump on the movie and go well the shark looks really fake and this and that it's like yeah it looks fake but you don't care yeah that, that it's so believable that, that this thing is this this ultimate killing machine that is stymieing them at every turn and just sort of breaking through every single defense or every single tactic they can make to, to destroy it it just you don't care that it looks like rubber because you buy into the idea of this character yeah. sort of being sort of unstoppable and the first few reveals of it are fast enough that yeah. it doesn't really matter it's sort of yeah. it almost retroactively takes care of that with Quint's speech about how sharks got lifeless eyes yeah uh, I mean yes the sharks in the in the run of Valerie Taylor footage are much more shark-like they're yeah. more believable they're articulated they bend in, in a natural way as opposed to the, the twisting thing that, the, that Bruce does yeah but Again, yeah, it doesn't matter. There's the, the it took me until this most recent viewing to realize that the shark is given not just agency but intelligence in the film because when it does the second leap, yeah. the jump up at um, the jump up at Hooper and Quint, 
uh, when they're trying to, to the free from the calipers. Yeah. yeah, I think calipers is the right word. Whatever those things are, Cleat. cleats, the cleats. When they're trying to pull the, um, the the barrel ropes from the cleats, it waits for Quint. Right. It doesn't jump when Hooper's there. Right. And it finally, because I, I was all tense, and I mean, I know the sequence. I know it's going to be great. And yeah. I was watching the audience, and then I thought. Wait a second, is it actually waiting for another pair of arms to come out over the transmit? Yes, it is. And that's when it jumps and people freaked out in the theater. Yeah. But it's like, Jesus Christ, that shark thought about that. Like, <laughs> they put that in there. And then, of course, you realize that's how Ben Gardner's boat was taken down. Right. This is the echo of that scene. Yeah. But you do kind of wonder, you know, like, how smart is the thing supposed to be? Is it a dumb animal? Yeah. It's like, no, it, it bides its time and it takes its shots. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's the interesting thing about it because once you get past Jaws and Jaws 2 and Jaws 3 and Jaws yeah. Revenge. Um, Blu-rays you know, just came out and I, I know. kind of admit I'm sort of tempted. I picked up, I got Jaws 2 and Jaws 3 two, yeah, two's not for bad. a birthday gift for okay. my family. I refused to. I said, <laughs> do not get me Jaws the Revenge. I cannot. Because by that point, they've endowed it with like like Jason like killing right. powers. Well, it, right? it follows them to yeah. another coast. And it beats them there. They yes. take a plane and the shark beats them to the Bahamas, right? Like, well, there's just... got to be tunnels under the earth. <laughs> I mean, clearly, that's, that's the real, that's, that's the only thing that will get Jaws 5 made. <laughs> you know, Chris Pratt is a diver who discovers the shark tunnels underneath the wall, okay. underneath the earth's core, or the crust, and, and that's how, that's lava how they... sharks. They've already, I mean, I think, the, I th- actually, I think the thing that is preventing a Jaws remake is the shark Sharknado phenomenon. Yeah. They already made them so silly that there's no point. Yeah. Well, I, but I, I think hearing back when they, after Jaws two had uh, been made, and Jaws two, you look at it and you kind of go, okay, because they had brought in Carl Gottlieb to sort of write it, and they brought back a lot of the same characters, yeah. it's as the, many as they could. Yeah, it's the best possible sequel. I yeah, think. it's fine. It, exactly, it and you know, it's different enough in some senses, and but you know, they they got to the point where I heard that the filmmakers were like, well. An idea that they were throwing around was the next movie they wanted to call Jaws 3 Human Zero. Yeah, Jaws 3 People Zero. Uh, yeah, John Landis was going to do it. That's right. And they were going to make it into like a, a, an airplane type, seat, like a, a, sat, a satirical farce yeah. or whatever, which, you know, but you, you could tell even back then they kind of felt like it had run its course and they'd done all that they could have with it. But, you know, it's like, well, people are still watching these movies. People still want the shark, so let's just keep going. Yeah. And then um, the 3D craze gave them an excuse. That's right. The, uh, the terrible, terrible 3D craze of the 80s, which no one remembers fondly. <laughs> uh, I lost my wallet in the movie theater watching that. There was one sequence that I had my wallet in my back pocket. And I must have been, oh man, I was maybe 13 years old at the time. Okay. And that right at the beginning, they had that fish head. Yeah, and yeah. it's floating. And I was like, and they sort of squished back down, like sunk down in my seat and my wallet popped out <laughs> and landed. And I had $15 in it, which was a princely sum at the time. It was. And uh, I worked very hard for that $15. And I remember being really upset that a movie as bad as Jaws 3 made me lose my wallet and the $15. Yeah. Like it, it cost me in more ways than one, that movie did. <laughs> uh, but I still get a kick out of watching so how this hokey is, it is. this is your Indianapolis speech. It is, it is. <laughs> Someday I'll find that theater again. $15 went into the theater. <laughs> Zero dollars came out. Theater took the rest. No. But uh, fish heads, oh. yeah, and they were not good 3D scares no. either. They just weren't any fun. No, they had that one gimmicky one where she's uh, she's got the syringe and she squirts it into the camera. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was the only sort of like, you know, it, it was Doctor Tongue's 3D house of horror, really. Yeah, you know, and um, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't even acknowledge the other one. Uh, there was the there, I I saw an interview with someone where they're trying to bait Michael Caine on it because uh, you know the reason he didn't he wasn't at the Oscars is because, because he was shooting, shooting Jaws four. Uh, so he wins Best Supporting Actor for Hen and Her Sisters. He's not there. And he um, 
and the, the interviewer is trying to get it. Like, well, aren't you really upset? I mean, didn't you, you know, you saw Hannah and his sisters. You know what that film was. Did you ever see Jaws the Revenge? And he said, no, I never saw it, but I did see the house it paid for. There you go. It's like, you know, yeah. Michael Caine's allowed to say that. Yeah. Like, he can do that. And mm-hmm. it is just an award. It's not that important. But, yeah, I want to... I mean, it's it's one of those films... I promised I wasn't going to do this. I just said we weren't going to talk about it. But Jaws the Revenge is one of those movies where you get the sense that the only way to make it was to make it as palatable for the for the actors, for the crew. We're going to go to the Bahamas. Yes. It's going to be nice. You're not going to have to do anything too strenuous. Yeah. The shark will be on a stick. You don't have yeah. to really deal with it. And so, yeah, why wouldn't people phone it in and say yes and just do it yeah. it's a it's a it's a surefire people talk about it they're in a Jaws movie why not and you park a dump truck full of money in front of them yeah and you kind of go hmm and, and you just that. you know Lorraine Gary's career wasn't going great guns or anything no. you might as well do another one and it was she had a tough time though for the entire film like for, for all the Jaws movies because you know she, she's married to um, one of the big uh, Scheinberg yeah. Scheinberg yeah and, uh, you know, there's there, that whole, I mean, and I'm sure, like, the original draft of the script, they still had the Hooper sort of relationship in there. Mm-hmm. So they yeah. see her character, see her character sort of get whittled down. And she still does it fantastically in the yeah. first movie. She's great in it. Um, you know, and they excise a lot of the, the stuff. And then in, in Jaws 2, they give her a little bit more to do because they're playing with the whole real estate sort of scam. So this is the reason why the town selectsmen aren't really interested in the show. They want, you know, they're not interested in summer dollars anymore. They're interested in... The, the, the investment for the timeshare condos, right? right. And Which, stuff. again, strangely prescient. You know, it's not a bad screenplay no. angle. No, I mean, and it's pretty smart. You kind of go, wow, yeah, that's that still holds up today. That that basic storyline could still hold up today in terms mm-hmm. of real estate greed sort of overshadowing public safety. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Jaws 4, she's, like, supposed to be the lead character, right? Like yeah. she And it's down to her and the, and the shark, and you just kind of go, well, you know, they gave her the shot. She took it. And another weird thing that I found out today, she shares the same birthday as us. The 16th? August 16th, like Ooh. 1935 or something like that. I so did not know that. I, I was just sort of like looking through and because I wanted to find out who she was married to and then they have it listed as August 16th. I thought, wow. God, you think That's... I would have found that out, buddy. <laughs> I know there's Steve Carell as well. Uh, okay. 62, I think. Okay. Or 63. He's five or six years uh, older than I am. And, uh, and of course, Elvis dying is the other thing yeah. that marks the birthday. Oh, well. All right, identity thieves, go for it. Do what you can. <laughs> Do your worst. But, um, oh, there is the, there's even the Jaws sequels, I'm angry at how much I invest in them every time. Like, I, that's the other thing. The reason yeah. we are talking about them is they still, they, they pull on that little flicker of hope yeah. that maybe somebody's going to get it right. Yeah. And, and it's like you say, because the second one wasn't as, wasn't that, I mean, it's, it's not going to hold the candle, it doesn't hold the candle to the first movie. But there's enough elements in there, and they tried to. It was still sort of a movie of the '70s where they tried to get character work in there and yeah. development, and yeah. sort of recapture some of that magic. Yeah, they knew what worked about the first yeah. one. They weren't just trying that. Like that's the frustrating thing. It wasn't just a cash in the way the other yeah. ones are. Yeah, it just isn't Jaws. Like it can't be. Yeah, and then they brought you know they bring in a French director uh, mm-hmm. who would come in and and you know like and but the the, sh- the focus was shifted as well to the kids then that, that whole journey of you know young Michael Brody. Um, you know, he's he's a teenager now. He just wants to hang out with his friends. Yeah. He's putting up with his overbearing, overprotective parents, and this and that. And he sneaks out. And I mean, there's a wonderful scene where, you know, Sean sees him sneaking out, and he's like, "Michael, yeah. he's like, okay, I'll take you with me." God damn it, you know. Yeah. And they bring along the bratty little kid brother, and of course, they're all in danger. 
Except for Michael, who gets hit and <laughs> he gets carted back to safety. And there's poor Sean out there. So you get the youngest kid mm-hmm. who's in danger. And that sort of, as a parent, pulls on your yeah. heart. And you're like, oh my God, how could that happen? Yeah. And it's also smart escalation because yeah. it's understandable human behavior. You know, like kids don't listen to their parents. Yeah. They weren't on the boat. They didn't see. I mean, yes, okay, Michael did experience absolute trauma the first time, but he doesn't remember it. So fine. I accept that. That's, <laughs> you know, it's it's no... It's no more of a stretch than Blair Witch being about Heather's brother, uh, who's obsessed with finding oh, yeah, yeah, yes. his, his yeah, kid yeah. brother, which which makes sense, the new one. Uh, it just gives it a starting point that isn't, well, we needed to make another movie, so this is what happens. Right. It at least finds some kind of emotional grounding. Yeah. And then three is, oh, they're working at SeaWorld. That's, <laughs> that's not good. And then in four, Sean finally gets killed by a shark. Right. You know, at the, the very the, the proper revenge. Yeah. First reel. Here we go. Yeah. And that shark's been waiting on it. Yeah. He's been waiting along. No one knows how old they get, but this one, yep. there's a little notebook. I just, I want to see like the shark's murder board underwater <laughs> with all the strings <laughs> and the pictures tied exactly. together. There, there you are. Gotcha. And then, yeah, poor Chief Brody died of heart failure. He, yeah. he was frightened to death, basically. That's how, you know, Roy Shadow finally said, enough's enough. Yeah. Not coming back. They said, he died of fear. I went, wow. That's not the guy we know. Yeah. It's such a disservice to that character, but, you know. But, you know, it's it's funny watching... I remember when you're, you're talking about the Laserdisc when it came out, and I remember seeing it come out for the first time. And I didn't have a Laserdisc disc player back then. I was VHS. Mm-hmm. and uh, But seeing it at HMV and just thinking, could I scratch up enough money to buy a Laserdisc yeah. player and get that anyway, right? Yeah. At the time, it was... Yeah. I couldn't justify it. could not justify it. Understandable. Uh, and I was fortunate enough, I was covering it for, I was writing about home video for the star at the time, so okay. I had the I had the beat. I didn't pay for the box. I paid for the player, but I didn't pay for the box set. They nice. sent that to me. It was nice. great. But the real accomplishment, which no one understands now, is that that was how you saw it in widescreen, because until then, mm-hmm. it was either panned and scanned for television, Ugh. or did you ever see the original VHS release where they pointed the telecine camera at the center of the frame for the entire movie? No! Yeah, that was oh my the God. first release. Uh, it was time... I think it... No, it wasn't. I was going to say it was time compressed to fit on a T120, but it was like a T130. It was The tapes were a little... It was over two hours, just by a hair. So there was one version, I think it might have been... A European edition. It was already like the, the PAL tapes are sped up by four percent right. for that standard. So it wasn't time compressed, but it was a one thirty three to one box oh of the dead center. Oh. There were scenes where it was just like the, the help <laughs> the help shark billboard scene. The shark <laughs> yeah. billboard is perfectly in frame, and then you get the nose of Larry Vaughn. Oh my god! And like a three three quarter profile thing <sighs> of half of Brody's head. That's it's, that's such a brilliant scene too. Like yeah. I, I love the fact. Like I used to go on and on about how the fact. That, um, you don't see filmmaking like that anymore because it is you're watching a play yeah you know yeah. it's a minute and 23 seconds long there's no cuts to it whatsoever they start in motion off frame going to it characters go in and out of frame they hit their marks they're, they're it's beautifully done mm-hmm. they're overlapping each other there's intensity to the scene you've got this great backdrop of the sign yeah. that they refer to that is yeah exactly it's actually the punchline of the scene those it, proportions are correct you actually have to see it for reference exactly and so when you have something like that oh that just what's the point yeah oh no i I wish i had kept it because i had the tape for years and i wish i'd hung on to it just to it's the black uh sleeve if anyone out there ever finds it it's the black vhs sleeve the poster on the front and the back is simply a photo i'm pretty sure it's it's just a photo of the three of them on the boat on the boat but it's black with red text maybe it's the ugliest way to package it and 
it is the worst possible presentation. Like they should teach that, yeah, uh, or have clips from that on YouTube to show people what bad pan and scan, what what the olden <laughs> days were like. The olden days, that's right. Yeah, because the TV transfer, the one that I saw, the one that I I grew up on, pan was pan and scan. So at least the action moved within yeah. the frame. You could, or the camera moved yeah. to cover the action. Well, I remember talking about the TV show, uh, TV version of it. I remember too watching a version on television, and they what they used to do, and uh, they would have added scenes. In, right, right, padding. Yeah, yeah, which was which amazing. Like it was a so shot of Queens, like a three-hour slot. Exactly, and but he was going into the, he was buying piano wire, and it was a kid playing the oboe, and sort of playing the song that that Quint really liked, and he started to hum along to it, and was like really impressed because the kid hit this one high note, and by the end, this kid just sort of it, it just falls apart, and he starts hitting the wrong notes on the reed, and Quint just Quint, he's like bah, 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 just sort of pounding through, and the kid just. There's this look of resignation on this kid's face that I love. He just sort of, he puts the, the oboe down or the clarinet down and just, he's done. He's done. And Quint's like, why don't you stop, right? Um, but little things like that that weren't in the theatrical release, but I remember seeing on television, right. which brings me back to the Laserdisc version because that was the first time that they showed snippets of the uh, the, the um, outtakes. Yeah. And one of them that I really kind of wished I had seen been able to see more of it was in a theatrical version but they ended up cutting because it was far too grisly was when they're in the pond and um, you know that that dude uh, played by I guess uh, Ted Grossman is uh, the the actor in it and he's the one that actually physically brought that tiger shark from Miami all the way up to Amity like when they, when they catch that shark right, yeah. he was tasked with bringing that up so they gave him a, a, a part and he's, so he's the guy in the rowboat right. who comes over and says you guys are alright you guys are, and he gets knocked over and he gets eaten and his leg floats down to the bottom in the outtake the shark Bruce has him in his mouth he's hanging out of the shark's mouth with blood pouring out of his out of his own mouth and the shark is pushing through the water and he hits Michael yeah. and Michael gets pushed along with this corpse hanging out of his shark's mouth and it explains far more why he was in complete shock because mm-hmm. I remember you know as cut in the theatrical version he's just he's treading water the, and the camera, camera passes past. him yeah. Yeah. And, which is frightening enough and I get it but you know to see him completely passed out as they, they bring him out for me it was always a bit of a disconnect when I was a kid thinking well I guess that would be scary but I don't know why he passed out right. and when I finally saw that little snippet that's in uh, the Laserdisc version of it and it's in black and white or something, I, I sort of went, oh my God, of course, well, that makes sense. Like, I would have totally shit the ocean. <laughs> that, would, that would have been done. I guess they cut it, I mean, I assume it was cut just in fear of an R rating, maybe, or maybe just because it too it too easily, like, it's too obvious setting up Quint for the end, yeah. who dies kind of the same way. But maybe it's just too early in the film to confront something like that. Yeah. Because you've, on, you've only seen... Flashes of, like the big fin with Alex Kittner. Yeah, the big, and the geysers of blood. blood but you yeah. haven't seen corpses. Like yeah. Even even um, even Chrissy is off camera. That's you right. Just see her arm. Yeah. Uh, when she's found in, in the autopsy sequence, that's, that's all right. that's left of her. But it's uh, the the sense of destruction, like the physical devastation that the thing re- creates yeah. on people, is really kept uh, kept off camera. Yeah, it's addition by subtraction in that yeah. sense. Our, our, our imaginations are far more powerful than anything that could possibly show us. But getting back to that too, it's like that whole... The one thing that sort of got me too was the Ben Gardner scene when they discover the boat and that the big jump scare and they shot that, you know, there was an added scene, there was a reshoot where they, they needed one more scare. Mm-hmm. And his head pops out. So he's dead. Like, they, they show his head and, his, you know, they got the little nerve that sort of hang out. Beautifully done. Very frightening. So here you have... 
a, a fish, a well-known fisherman who's dead. And there's no doubt that, you know, somebody's taking a bite out of him, right? Right. And they're arguing about it. And you could tell it was a reshoot. And they just sort of put it in there because his death has no weight yeah. to it whatsoever. And that argument scene, which is a great scene, is, you know, really well acted. You know, Hooper, I, I always wonder why they didn't just say, look at the corpse in the morgue. That's Ben Gardner, right? But they, they never mentioned him. Yeah. And that's one of those little things that you don't really notice right away. But after you watch it like 30, 40 times... The little threads, you start tugging at the threads yeah. and you kind of go, oh, yeah, well, what about Ben Gardner? Like, they brought in his boat. It's all beat up, yeah, but he's dead and there's a big hole in, this, in the hull. Yeah, um, it's, I just, I assume that, and, and, and I'm filling in the blanks myself, I guess, but I just assume that Larry is, that Vaughn is so, so on top of it at that point because he's actively covering it up mm-hmm. now that he would, the coroner's come up with some kind of other explanation and the, the fact that they can't prove it's a great white is the thing that, the only thing that matters they don't, yeah they don't yeah. have the, the tooth yeah because it's he, he fixes on that so quickly in the conversation yeah the, the one piece of evidence I, the thing I really love about about Murray Hamilton's performance too he's not stupid Larry Vaughn is not an idiot no. he's just despicable yeah like he's he's craven and desperate and looking for excuses yeah and you know my kids are on the beach too it's almost an apology but it really is no. <laughs> he's, he's playing people even then in that yeah. moment and the yeah every 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 obstacle every obstruction everything that comes up it really is all yeah. human designed it is very simple you know like hooper says you kill it or you take away its food supply that's it and vaughn doesn't want to do either one no and so as a result all of this happens yeah but it's 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 great. I mean, that's 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 great storytelling too. When you have a character like that, who's like it basically forces the action in a certain direction. Because without him, yeah, then it's an easy story, yeah. right? You need those obstacles sort of thrown in the way. Great antagonists. Uh, another story about Murray Hamilton. He had a he was having a terrible time while he was there because they went over in terms of shoot and what oh, was supposed yeah. to be like seven weeks turned into 20 and he right. was freaking and it was a, out. it was like a fall shoot, right? So... It, um, no, no. It was it was, the... it was in the spring. Okay. And uh, what happened was, yeah, because what happened was as well, the waters had to be warmed. They used to... The, the, the ocean currents would bring in the warm water so it really wasn't comfortable enough to swim in until July the 4th. But they had all the big group scenes... Uh, with on the beach scenes early on, and right. the oh, locals wouldn't go in the water. People are cold. Oh yeah, they were just There's like goose flesh. And they hair. could not. They had an idea of uh, getting stuntmen dressed up in uh, flesh-colored oh. wetsuits to pretend that they were bathers, and they eventually ended up pushing it near the end. But Murray Hamilton was like, he's beside himself because he's there. He's got a small. He's got a smallish part, um, but they just kept delaying it. And he had. He's a theater actor, and there were all these plays that were going up, and he couldn't at work and he was missing the theater season and he was kind of freaking out and one night he, he would just go out and get drunk right and just sort of like unwind and one night apparently he was stumbling home and he saw in this overturned garbage bin what he thought was a small dog so he went to go pet it and it was a skunk oh. and it hit him full blast in the face apparently <laughs> and he was so in his cups he didn't even realize that he was just covered in this spray oh. he went back to his hotel room went up and that's when he noticed that the smell that, like it smelled like skunk mm. but he realized it was him oh. so he opened the windows tried to air it out smell wouldn't go away so he wrapped himself up in a blanket went down to the lobby of the hotel and fell asleep in the on the sofa in the lobby <laughs> <laughs> and wasn't discovered until the morning when the staff oh, said basically you God. gotta get out of here because you stink and so they had to burn his suit and they had to <laughs> do all this stuff but uh, oh, Godly writes that how 
how much he was really happy when he was leaving. Like he was in really fine spirits. And they had to bring him back for a couple of scenes, but he didn't mind because he knew he was just going to be there for a little bit and mm-hmm. sort of go off. But apparently he was just like a great guy. And he just passed away recently, I uh, think. Like maybe last year was it? I think so, a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. I've I've lost. We're we're recording this two days after the film festival, and I've lost all oh, track of time. <laughs> but yeah, I missed that. Oh, I didn't know that. It's yeah. um, it is yeah. Again, it's the kind of role that could be a one-dimensional goon. Yeah, and he's so much better than that. He's yeah. he's a wheedler, and he's he's arrogant when he needs to mm-hmm. be, and he's haughty, and he wields his office like that. That that other amazing one-take scene, the 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 one around the ferry. Oh yeah, uh, on a raft where they run, where they run Brody out to the swimmers, but they never get there because the whole plan is you can take us back now. Yes, he's just there to deliver that monologue again. Single take, lockdown camera, yeah. glorious filmmaking, yeah. and unnecessarily economical because they didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> uh, but the idea that they will shoot it this way because it adds to the film, not because it's convenient. So many steps that they took, mm-hmm. um, even just the idea of locking the tripod down on the boat so that it would fix the actors and the horizon is all crazy. Yeah. But no one noticed. He was absolutely right. He's, uh, Spielberg and, and Joe Alves, I think, were yeah. basically arguing about it and then decided that, no, you know what? If if it works, no one will care. Sure. And they're absolutely right. Every now and then I, I realize how much movement there is in the background and how the water line isn't standing still and it doesn't really cut together uh in certain conversations because this the waters were still when one side yes. was being shot doesn't matter yeah. it it's not important yeah. it's a, they're on a boat that's all i care about and then if you look at the sky sometimes too yeah. sometimes it's overcast sometimes it's bright blue yep and uh again you don't these are things that you don't really pick up on until like you watch it 30 or 40 times yeah. and you're looking at other different all the other different things it took me at least 15 years, maybe the third or fourth time I saw it theatrically, to realize that there's no like there's no foliage, there are no leaves on the trees because it's fall. That's right. Uh, it doesn't play. It doesn't yeah. matter. Like it's not important. And and actually, the that was the other question I was going to ask. How how many opportunities have you had to see it in a theater? In a theater? Oh, you know what? Um, I haven't seen it on the big screen. When I remember when they were playing at the light box a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and I'm dying to go see it, but I just could never get my act together to go see it on the big screen. But I hadn't seen it on a on a like proper screen, well, since I was a kid. Oh wow! To be honest, like mm-hmm. I've, it's always been a television. You know, thank God for widescreen TVs. I'm glad we finally got into this point of civilization where yeah. we, we realize like this is how it was intended to be watched. Yeah. And I don't have to listen to people bitch and moan about the bars at the top and the bottom of the screen, like back in the day with the old VHS oh, yeah. letterbox. Yeah. What? That's ah. Yeah, I I've never understood that. I paid for this whole screen. I should fill it. <laughs> Movies aren't television. They're just not. Exactly. Well, now you get people complaining about the bars on the sides oh, of yeah, the screen. Oh, yeah, 4 by 3 right? yeah. And they're like, what is that? It's like... Yeah. It's because uh, in the olden days, yeah. movies used to be like the old TVs, <laughs> and you were happy then. Um, I have seen it. I have made a point of, like, any opportunity. Uh, I have... This is this is a humble brag. I have seen it in four of the five theaters of the light box because oh, they keep wow. moving, but never number one. I've never managed to see it in Theater really? One, which is the one that I really want to yeah. see it in. Well, do you think they'll do it? I think it'll eventually well, they'll get there. I mean, when they had the digital restoration, they screened it for us in Theater Three? No, Two. They screened okay. it for us in Two. I introduced a 35mm print in 2010 in Three, and I saw it again uh, when the restoration was still playing. I, Kate hadn't seen it, so we, she'd seen the film, but she'd yeah. never seen the theater. So we went to see that, and they screened it in Four. And then in August, I saw it in Theater 5. But Theater 1 still hasn't mm. happened. Mm-hmm. Someday. Saw well, I'll, be, I'll be there. That was nice. I'll move heaven and earth. <laughs> I will make sure you know about it. Uh, but they did. They rotated it through because it's 
you know, a DCP. You can program yeah. it on any screen. So they moved it, and it was playing in Theater One for a couple of, at least a couple of times right. in the course of that engagement. But I just couldn't make it. And, but, but people still come up to see it, too. They do. That's it's so thing. wonderful. I, yeah. I saw it in 95. Might have been the first time I ever saw it in a theater. Uh, they're the Uptown of Blessed oh, Memory. That's my. That was my favorite theater yeah. of all. Yeah. They had a 70mm series, and they had a Midnight series. Oh. And it didn't play. There was a 70mm blow-up, apparently, but it didn't play. We saw it in a Midnight series in the summer of 95, maybe 96. And it was in one of the smaller rooms. Still good room. Uh, and it was a midnight screening and people came in and a few people there were clearly, they'd gone drinking beforehand to see it and they were trying to experience it as camp. Oh, so okay. when Shaw first shows up, they were doing all the pirate noises that they do in the theaters right. like the light box. Now, arr, arr. And they were trying to make fun of him and the movie beat them. There you go. The movie, the next, the next time he showed up, there was just silence because the movie was playing and it, it had them. Love it. Yeah. Love that. It will not let you mock it. <sighs> you know, they, they had uh, down in the States... Um, the Alamo House, Draft House. Yeah. They had a viewing. Oh, man. They, they did a viewing there, but there wasn't... Well, no, no, no. It was on the anniversary. They went up to Martha's Vineyard, I think, mm-hmm. and they actually had like the, the big celebration, the Jaws celebration there. Maybe I'm getting confused. I want to call it Bruce Palooza so bad. <laughs> but I think they had it where actually it was in a lagoon, and they had a floating Oh, like screen. an outdoor screen? Okay, yeah. And people were in inner tubes. <laughs> Sitting on the water watching Jaws, but what they did was they paid a bunch of divers oh, to I go underneath done the same thing. and grab people's legs or whatever during the screening of the movie. <sighs> and they had a picture, and it was, it's a beautiful shot. And I thought, oh, what a perfect way to screen this oh, movie! Man. Put one mannequin out there that's yeah. been bitten in half below the waist, and just flip it during the Indianapolis scene, just bobbing up and down like a top. <sighs> oh my God! It is the gift that keeps on giving. It, is. it really is. Wow. There, there are. There are films that I love and there are films that I admire as classics in there. Movies that I respect because they're great, but I don't necessarily connect to them. Mm-hmm. And Jaws hits every single part of me yeah. that loves cinema. And it is, I, I mean, I, I, I wrote this once uh, and I'll stand by it. You know, The Godfather is a great American film and Citizen Kane is a great American film, but they don't get your pulse above 80 beats a minute. True. This is This is the one that does all the things that a movie should do mm-hmm. to entertain you and also has has musculature. You can peel it apart and you can see that there's there's the class struggle, there's the civics lesson of how mm-hmm. to run a city, there's the threat of a community, uh, there's the, the concept of an outsider invasion, there's a concept that the community itself is the monster because if we can't see the shark, we have to watch people turn on each other. Right. Which is actually better. Yeah. Because the shark is the thing that exposes their own weaknesses on land. And then there's just this amazing warm relationship between uh, Martin and Ellen Brody. Yeah. There's the kids stuff. There's every strength that Spielberg has ever had and none of his weaknesses. Yeah. And it holds up. Yeah. Every single one of these themes that you're touching, like it's still, you can watch that and these, these themes still apply today. Yeah. You know, they're not dated anymore they're not outmoded they're not like oh well we used to have that problem but not anymore yeah. like it's just more and more that that's front and foremost look all the zombie uh genres that are happening right now it really is it's like the threat isn't the zombie itself it's the human beings yeah. as they try to deal with the zombies and that's far more compelling and far more frightening mm-hmm. than anything else you know it's the people's reaction to this outside sort of force and uh yeah absolutely right you're absolutely right and that's why it still holds and that's why it still has power and uh, you know, I, I still get, 
I still push this movie. I pimp this movie out to yeah. all my friends, and people's like, "What? You haven't seen this? Yeah. How is you know? it possible that you could live in Western culture and not have seen Jaws? Or at least, I mean, it was one of the first memes. I would say yeah. almost like that. The music was yeah. because it was the same year Saturday Night Live, and it was suddenly pop culture satire was a thing mm-hmm. to the point where Airplane was 1980, I think, or 1981, and they were they opened with a Jaws riff. That's right. With that, the Got the airplane, yeah. the, 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 <laughs> the tail fin, fin of the yeah. airplane, yeah. But it actually gets an uneasy laugh at the beginning because, and Spielberg himself in 1941 mocked yes. it in the opening yeah. sequence, and it's still kind of creepy, which is great. <laughs> like he can't fully sell comedy because that's never, he's never been totally comfortable with, with a full comic. I mean, maybe by the time they got to Catch Me If You Can, he was more comfortable with it, but um, parody is not his thing. Yeah, and so when he does that. Re- he reestablishes that riff at the beginning of 1941 it's straight and it's kind of unnerving and, mm-hmm. and weird uh, and I love that because it's such a, a primal concept and you know the zombie the zombie and the shark are actually really weirdly strangely matched in, in the in the unconscious supposedly because yeah. it's about the fear of being eaten yes but yeah. the, the marauding nature of the zombie you know you can't stop them and there's going to be more of them and they look like your friends and True. all of that Jaws takes that all away, and there is just a thing under the water that will get you if you go in the water. Oh, it's yeah. that simple. That, that one moment where um, I think it's, of course, it's Brody. His foot slips on the gunnel of the uh, <laughs> of the orca. Yeah. Every time I've seen that in a theater, somebody goes. They, they just they can't help it. Yeah. Because you're in his shoe. You're yeah. literally thinking about you being in that moment, and yeah. something will get you. Yeah. Oh, and that affected society. People stop going to the beaches yeah. for a while. Everybody's afraid to go into the water, you know? And, uh, I mean, I certainly, I, even as a kid, I mean, it, the, the effect that it had, I remember I wouldn't sleep with my arm hanging over the bed <laughs> because I was afraid a shark was going to, a shark sure. in my apartment. But if you see that movie at five, that's going to scar you. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, it, it also did spark an interest, like a, a, an obsession with sharks oh, yeah. as well for me. I mean, I just voraciously read everything I could find about sharks. I drew pictures of sharks. I wanted to be Matt Hooper. I wanted to learn about all these things. And I, I picked up all these trashy magazines about shark attacks and read about bull sharks swimming up river in freshwater, you know, yeah. and eating fishermen and reading accounts of the USS Indianapolis and, and all this stuff. And it just, it stayed with me my entire childhood almost, right? Like, it got strong at certain certain points and it would, you know, flow and ebb, but it was always there, you know, and I learned so much about sharks um, growing up because of that. And, you know, it's, it's nice to hear Spielberg actually sort of turn around and suddenly realize that, you know, he, through this movie, the, he sort of led to the annihilation of like a, a large portion of the shark population just because people just saw them as remorseless eating machines and they must all be eradicated. So. Right. And now that they see that it's like, well, no, like anything else, they're just animals, and if you hunt them to extinction, they're gone forever. So there's this whole push to towards really understanding them. And so whenever you see Shark Week on uh, what is it, the oh, Discovery, Discovery Channel, yeah. you know, you kind of go, oh, okay, okay, well, that's yeah. great. And it comes from that, and there's still there's something very primal about it that really still touches, I think, a lot of people uh, on that instinctive level. Yeah, you know. Oh, absolutely. And I think, again, if you'd seen the shark all along, it wouldn't work that way. Yeah. You wouldn't have... You would be scared, but you wouldn't be afraid. You wouldn't yeah. have that actual primal thing pulling at you that, you know, you're just basically an overgrown lemur and there's a bigger monster waiting to eat you <laughs> at any given moment. That that sense of actual terror. Yeah. Which is so great. 
It's so wonderful to experience it yeah. in a nice dry theater with no fans. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Like, it's that perfect catharsis. You can watch Alien and I'm not, I'm not in space. I'll be fine. Yeah. Um, but then Jaws is playing and there's going to be a puddle outside and I'm going to get a little tense. <laughs> so the, um, the, the closer question on the podcast is yep. always the same, which is what, if anything, have you pulled from this film ha- has made it into your DNA? And I think we kind of covered it, but oh, yeah. have you ever leaned on it in performance or in, in a way? Well, you know, the, the one thing that I really loved that I used, I mean, my favorite, favorite actors growing up, Roy Scheider for me was just sort of like the, the, the be-all and end-all of uh, somebody, like the, the journeyman sort of actor yeah. who played his roles really, really well. Um, played it with a lot of authenticity, with a lot of heart. Um, and that, that's something as an actor that I try to strive towards is the, the believability of any sort of given character and uh, the re- relatability um, of his character as well. Like There are roles that you're given where sometimes... You, I need to make a connection with them in order to play them properly just because if I can't connect to them, I can't expect anybody else to sort of, who's watching my performance, connect to it as well. Sure. And uh, what I loved about the the performances were they weren't, there's no, it would have been so easy to go hysterically over the top with a lot of these scenes. It would have been really easy to mug a lot of the scaring, uh, a lot of the jump scares and this and that. But that movie was played so truthfully and so authentically um, I, that's something that I strive towards as well. And that was a great model for me as a kid growing up. I didn't know I was going to be an actor. I didn't think I wanted to be an actor. But there was something just so basically relatable and human about these characters. It made it easy for me to sort of find empathy towards and really latch onto them. Especially Roshider's character. And, you know, Hooper had his own sort of brash. I loved Hooper because he was young and brash and wanted knew the answers. But, you know, Quint was sort of beating down on him. And I loved Quint for being such a hard ass. Yeah. And I love the dynamic between the three of them, but it really is a master class of watching them act, especially that, uh, you know, when, when they're on the Orca and they're, they're, they're bonding over yeah. the, the meal, the, the scars and this and that. Yeah. There's just something beautifully human about that. Three men at sea just sort of stuck there and finding a way to relate to each other. Yeah. Uh, that's, I've sort of carried that, not only in acting, but just in my own sort of day-to-day life. There's, there are, we might have our differences but we all have things in common that if we if we really, really look for, we can see ourselves in a lot of people right. and just sort of go with that. And uh, yeah, it's still one of my favorite scene, uh, moments too, is just them quietly sort of having a laugh yeah. after a hard day at work, you know, and just sort of seeing past all the bullshit and realizing that, hey, you know what? I'll drink to your leg. You drink to my leg, I'll just, let's drink to your legs. And, there's Brody on the outside is always Appendectomy looking at me. scar. Yeah. Which is a joke that plays less and less, I find. I don't think people know what it no. is. No. Um, I'm old enough to remember. I never had one, but I remember them. And uh, I think now with laparoscopies or something, we're just seeing less and less of that yeah. scar. It almost didn't even read the last time I saw it. The uh, Although it might have just been the, the angle of okay. the screen. And just, I looked for it. Yeah. And it was the same DCP as the last time, so I'm sure it's there. It's just right. one of those odd little moments where the room just doesn't laugh the way <laughs> they ought to. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard that like I've heard that laugh die over the decades. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember. I had to explain to my kids, but they didn't. They don't. You know, they're young yeah. still, right? I mean, so. It still just looks like somebody being uncomfortable and insecure. So it plays, but the yeah. joke of the only thing he has is the appendectomy scar doesn't work. It's weird. No, more people need to have burst appendixes. I guess. There you go. Let's get on that. Okay. <laughs> Start forcing people to get appendectomies. Yeah. Like you, right now. How do you trigger that? You just <laughs> like force feeding like goose or something. Yeah, or uh, tree bark. Okay. Just get him to overload on tree bark because that's apparently what the uh, appendix was for to help digest tree really? bark. Yeah, something yeah. about that. 
All right, next hipster cocktail. <laughs> Settled. That'll be it. My thanks to Paul Sun Hyung Lee, who you can see Tuesdays at 9 p.m., 9.30 in Newfoundland, in Kim's Convenience, starting tonight on CBC. And if you missed the broadcast, you can catch up online at cbc.ca slash Kim's Convenience. Uh, I've seen the first three episodes, and they're really fun. Looking forward to the rest. You can follow Paul on Twitter at BitterAsianDude, all one word, and you can find Jaws on DVD and Blu-ray from Universal Studios Home Entertainment in a series of terrific special editions. The Blu-ray has just, like, it's packed. Just buy the Blu-ray. Why don't you already own the Blu-ray? It's also for sale or rental on iTunes and Google Play and streaming on Netflix Canada along with all of the sequels, but don't. Just just buy the Blu-ray. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, or on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review up on iTunes, that would be very, very kind of you. This week's call sign is Amity, as you know, means friendship. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.